Let us uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time looking at his word. O God, our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus gave his disciples a mission under his authority. We keep talking about this. We're in the Pentecost season, the season of the church. And I want us to be mindful of that as we consider his word. This mission that Jesus gave his disciples under his authority is in fact our mission as well. We are his church and individually given this task of going, discipling, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. When a person becomes a member of this church or household becomes a member of this church, they have vows. They start with their commitments to Christ. And then the vows focus on their relational promises to the current members to support, submit, to refrain from sin against one another, to be at peace, to assist one another in the call to make disciples of the nations. This means in individuals, this is to say about making disciples of the nations, this means in our individual lives, in the lives of our marriages, in child rearing, in the full community of the local church here at Creck and the Church Universal. It's really important that we grasp hold of this because we live in a world that's individually focused. What do I get out of church? Why am I here? What is the church doing for me? God created us with a purpose, all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, to the one with the most wealth to the least. God has called us. Last week, we, we, if you recall, we discussed how the world, the unbelievers, is divided. And they have developed all kinds of schemes to divide us by class, by education, by tribe. And unfortunately, the church has picked this up as well. We find ways to be divided by denomination, again, by class and tribe. And there are certainly things. You can go to a place where there's just one uh, type of, of class of people, although there's always a leader in that group, and there's always a straggler in that group. But what we need to recognize is we as Christians, as the individual church here, are called to not be divided. We are one people. Last week we also discussed what it means to be a saint. In the Old Testament we learned about the degrees of separation that were erased by Christ. And again, for those of you, I mentioned it this morning in Sunday school, but I want to say to all of you here today, in the Old Testament... There were degrees of separation. We saw first this happening at the time of Adam and Eve, where they were in the garden with God, and when they sinned, they were placed out of the garden of Eden into the land of Eden. And then when Cain killed Abel, he was pushed out of, by judgment, by God, out of the land of Eden into the land of Nod. And we see this 
into the people of Israel. Well, even where even in Israel there were the people who could only come so far into the sanctuary, and then the Levites and priests could go but so far, and only one, the high priest, only once a year could go into the very presence of God to atone for sin. In Christ Jesus, however, there is no more distinction for who we are. We are the people of God. Now God does grant us leaders and people to lead us and guide us. I will remind all of you that for those that are in leadership, pastors, elders, deacons, those who bring the teaching of God's word, there's an extra judgment. I want to be clear to you, I come up here every week very concerned that I preach faithfully to you for your sakes and for mine. But these degrees of separation are no longer. I am a sinner saved by grace, just like each of you. Now, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which is where we're focused on right now, we see that he writes to the entire church. (coughs) Excuse me. He does not make distinctions any longer. He says, you are the people of God. You are the believers. You are the disciples of Christ. We learned that in Ephesians chapter 1, that it is a responsive prayer there in Ephesians 1. After he addressed the questions of what it means to be a saint, he says, and that of course is, being a saint is, there's no more degrees of separation. We are all in Christ able to go before the throne of God in mercy and grace. But we see there in Ephesians 1 that there's a, a responsive prayer There is, first, to give thanks for creation, thanks for redemption, and finally, to ask God for fulfillment of His will and kingdom. And I mentioned last week a little bit about this, how we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms. And I had this in my mind today. I didn't select the hymn, but when I was reading, or we were singing it today, I thought about this. Love divine, all love's excelling. Okay, it starts out with... Love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Right? And it it starts talking about his mercies, crowning us and all this. And in the last verse, it tells us this. So we have, thanks God for creating us. Thanks God for for your redemption. And then the last verse, finish then thy new creation. There's that call to ask God to finish what he has begun. And we see this in a great hymn from uh, the church. So I want us to hear, though, as as preparation for chapter 2 of Ephesians, to hear the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Therefore also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, that I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened. So after he gives thanks to God, he asks God, he petitions God, that all of the church in Ephesus may have the spirit of wisdom 
and the revelation and the knowledge of him. We can come to know Christ. We can confess our sins. We have a starting block, but then we need to grow and mature in our understanding. And then he says, to what end? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. He's calling you not just, oh, yay, I get to go to heaven, but rather he's calling you to an actual job, what he created you for. And he says in this, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints. He suddenly says, you can do all this because there is a, a, there's great riches in the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And was it, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name which is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. And before we finish chapter 1, I want to tell you this. Be mindful. Be mindful here. He says, he's doing, God is doing all this in Christ by his mighty power, and that Christ is sitting in heavenly places. This is important. When Jesus ascends, he ascends to the right hand of God the, the Father, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him for us to be able, through him, to make disciples of the nations. And he says, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. It doesn't matter what time period in history you're in, Christ is over all. No matter the chaos you see in the world around you, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He is working through His people to disciple the nations. It might look scary. We might have insecurities, but we don't need to. We cast our cares upon the Almighty God and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ and in that alone. But it starts there so that we are able then to take action to make disciples. And of course, right after that in verse 22, if you're not sure yet, it says this, And He, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet. Whose feet? Jesus Christ. And gave him to be head over all things. To who? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in Christ Jesus, we are operating under his authority to what end? So that all things in the world may be put under the church, his body. I want you to understand this. As the people of God here, Christ is at the right hand of the Father and He has given this authority to us. Now that's hard for us to take. It's sort of like the first time you get in a car. I remember the first time my mother said to me, go outside, it's cold, it's winter. I think I was 12 years old. Go start the car. Now, I had watched them and I don't know, I don't even remember the rest of the conversation. Right? But I remember going out and taking the car, and it was a stick shift. And I get in the car, and of course I'd seen him push the pedals down at one time or another. And 
we were it was in a parking lot behind our townhouse thank goodness there was some grass because it was in reverse back then and left in reverse and when i started that car guess what happened the whole car jumped the curb and was in the grass okay i came inside very shaken but but this is important i didn't realize the power that was there that it was given to me to address to put it in neutral right guess what the next thing i learned how to put it in neutral but god has given us the power to make disciples of the world it's power from the right hand of god the father almighty People of God, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be diligent and make preparations for hard times. I'm not saying that at all. But you have to understand, and I'll say it again and again and again, empires fall and God's people, the church, remain. It remains. You know, it's very important that we recognize that there's a couple of things going on in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is divided in two halves the first half is chapters one through three and a little bit of four but when you get to chapter four verse 17 there's this word therefore verse 17 it says this i say and remember he's speaking to all of the people all of the saints all of the christians young old alike men and women no matter their backgrounds He says, this I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. The first half of Ephesians is about truths and doctrines. And then there's a second half that's about practical application in living now in today's day and age we have a tendency to say okay there's the intellectual part and then there's the doing part right and i have to understand the intellectual part before i can really get to work at the doing part and so we stay in neutral in that car and that authority and that power that god has given us because we're like well i don't have it all worked out yet The fact is that these truths and doctrines that you find in the first half of the book of Ephesians are facts. And whether you understand them completely or not is immaterial. You must believe them and trust God in it. And in that way, believe and act. Believe it, it is so, therefore I will act. Believing is Having faith, having faith, and acting accordingly. I could pull this stool out here and put it in the middle of the floor over here and say, I can stand on that and it will hold my weight. Doesn't mean I can keep my balance. But if I never pull it out and I never stand on it, I don't have a demonstration of my faith. My faith is to trust the truths that God gives me in His Word. And then I'm going to simply take action in obedience to that. I'm all for us trying to work it out. 
trying to understand it. I encourage you to do so. I want you to study God's Word. I want us to have robust conversations. But even in the place where I don't have it all figured out, we must say, I will walk in obedience to that truth. And in that way, we will see God's work and His Spirit in our lives bringing change to us. Now, if we go here and we look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to call this, in the very beginning, the conduct of the dead. There's a contrast. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you, he made alive, and that you is a plural you. That's all you, all y'all, all the Christians in Ephesus, and it has application to us here as the people of God. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, a trespass is debt. A trespass is you, go, you, you get into debt against God for your sins. He made us alive, those of us who were dead. We were, in fact, all dead in our trespasses. We owed heaps of things of faithlessness to God, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Everyone walked in this way in the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, this is important. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. But I want us to understand that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is displaced at Christ's ascension. Where does Christ go in the ascension? Children, you know the answer. Where does he go? Heaven. And it's described in what way? Where did he go? Up in the air, in the firmament. The heavens opened. And he, he went up. He has displaced the prince of the air, Satan, is now rendered ineffectual. He has power in most cases because it's given. He's being subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we see it here because we have been made alive, all of us who once were dead. And he says this, The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were once conducted ourselves in lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We need to understand that we were all in this state, but now that we're saints, we're no longer under the power of the prince. You are no longer in bondage to the sin. The the situation is this. In Christ Jesus, you were set free from the bondage of sin, And now when you sin, you are choosing to stack up those trespasses. But it is good that Christ came, because we are no longer dead. We see in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. We also see in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We also see in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, that is Jesus, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, 
he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So in Jesus' death, we are made alive. And it isn't simply made alive, but made alive, and what? In his death and resurrection and ascension, he has disarmed the principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them. This is important that we recognize this. We are made alive in Christ. How do we know this? Well, if we're all honest, we've piled up sins and trespasses and debts against God. We see in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, continuing on, But God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches of grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now this word rich, it says God is rich in mercy. A lot of times, we we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school today, this division of Old Testament and New Testament. And people say, you know, God in the Old Testament was vindictive and terrible and all of this. But you know, the word mercy, as it relates to God, shows up in the Old Testament more than 200 times. And shows up nearly 100 times in the New Testament. God has been full of mercy since the beginning of creation. And He is rich in mercy because He loved us. Yes, we were dead, but we are made Alive, alive together, this is important, with Christ. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what is this now? Made us alive together, raised us up together, and sit, we sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Now, that's not some ethereal spiritual thing out there. This has to do with the authority. Because remember, he's just saying, displaced the, the, the prince of this air, right? This is with his authority that we are going forth. And it's together. I'm trying to push back against the idea of it's all about me and, as an individual. But it is about the people of God together. Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were hopeless, stacking up trespasses against God, and in Christ Jesus, through His love, through His great mercy, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is important for us to remember that we are raised up together. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 13, that we are one body. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Later on in Ephesians, in chapter 4, Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. 
And in the book of Colossians, verse, or chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Now this is, you have to understand this, this issue about being divided was the big heresy that all of the disciples were dealing with in the first century. Because those who wanted to hold on to the Old Testament in the way in which we say, oh, before we had this way of doing it, and by the way, it was very corrupted. It was no longer following God's directives. That's the problem. Christ comes, and now there are some, even in the church, who are saying, oh, we have to be divided. There's still Jews and Gentiles. There's still uh, uh, the Israelites and the God-fearers. No, in Christ, we're one body. And Paul makes this distinction to the church in Corinth, to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus, and to the church in Colossia. He makes that, that clarification. No, one body, one body, one body. Do we understand that? I want us to believe this, whether we get it all the way or not. And he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's brought us all together in heavenly places. That's, again, not that ethereal place out there, but in the place of authority over the world to make disciples. We're not here to lord over anyone. We are here to bring God's mercy and truth and hope to the world. It makes me think of this in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 6. Remember, the, the nations were raging against God, and, and it says that God himself laughed at their efforts of how they were going to take themselves out from being under bondage of God. And it says that God himself laughs at them. And then he says this in verse 6, Yet I have set, this is God speaking, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you what? The nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That is, so that all the nations would come to know Jesus Christ. We see later on in the book of Luke where Jesus is interacting with the 70 that he sent out. Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 17, we see this. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well, was it so that they had power just so they could, you know, flick the demons away? No, it was so that the good news could be preached. So that the people would understand that the guilt and regret and unresolved sin in their lives could be done away with because of Jesus Christ and that they could be reconciled to God Almighty. That was why they were given power and authority even over the demons. We see in verse 18, Jesus responds to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's no longer the prince of the air. He no longer has power. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. People of God, Satan can't hurt you. He can't destroy you. We are in Christ Jesus. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in that, but be glad that God has called you of his own. Remember, we talked about this in Ephesians 1. He predestined it. He chose you, not of your own works. Which brings us back to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. This word works, ergon. It means work or deeds or doing or the labor. Nothing we can do can save ourselves. Nothing can save us. It is everything in our mind and our actions. Anything that you can accomplish, those are works. Why does God not save us through works? You know, it's so funny. In the, church, the Christian church, we have this tendency to, to divide it up. Yep. I'm saved through faith in Christ. And then I become a Christian, and it's all about, i got to keep my salvation through works. That's backwards. That's wrong. But faith without works is dead. You should have a fruit of repentance. There should be a demonstration that Christ has worked in your life, and now you are striving to obey God. But he says this, lest any of us should boast that is we're not going to get the glory for being a christian it is for god's glory and in this we need to understand that god is at work by his spirit in our lives verse 10 of ephesians 2 for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus what for good works so you become a christian you love god you want to please him he's empowered you to do good works to bring the gospel message in truth to others in love with the same mercy he brought to you. And all of this, we are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. We should walk in these, and he prepared these for us from the very beginning. We need to, be, we need to trust and believe God and therefore take action in our daily lives. We see in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we see Abraham being spoken of. And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed upon them also. That is covered over, draped over, when you talk about imputing something. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Boy, that's a lot of that. Let me just explain that in succinct order. That is to say, he believed God, he walked in obedience to God, and as we know from elsewhere in Scripture, his faith, his trust, believing God, was counted to him as righteousness. Now, our righteousness is imputed to us or covered over or draped upon us because of the work of Jesus Christ, but we still have to believe. People of God, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you're following him, great. He's covered you. You're no longer in bondage. Live rightly. Obey his word full of joy. It is important that we understand that we cannot separate. People of God, you are brothers and sisters. You cannot escape it at all. 
Verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore, remember that you once being Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made by flesh and hands, <coughs> that at a time that you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God and in the world. Paul is telling them, hey, listen, there was a time where there were degrees of separation and you were separated from God. You were in that place. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, having been brought near by the blood of Christ. What canceled the degrees of separation? The blood of Christ. We are brought near to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Made both of what? Those who believed who were Israelites and those who believed who were Gentiles. He made them one. As one broke it, and he says this, who's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. There is no more separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so to create in himself what? One new man from two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, that is the hatred between them. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. So both those who were close to God in the degrees of separation and those who were afar off, he preached the truth and we were made one. Think about it in marriage, right? The two become one flesh. Jesus the Son comes, he's the bridegroom, and he marries the bride. Who's the bride? The church. We are no longer strangers. No. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but what? Fellow citizens with the saints. That is to say, you all, we all, have access to the throne. And we are members of the household of God. You know, today, because divorce is so rampant, we have no understanding of the permanency God intended. We don't understand. We think, oh, just like this. I'm in this church. Uh, this, oh, I don't like this. I'm a member here. I'm just going to go over there. We are the people of God. We need to be dedicated and loving and committed to one another. It is important that we see this. But we are being, we are one, fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's important that we see that it is a foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's God's word, and Jesus Christ himself, he's the cornerstone, being, he's the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into the holy temple of the Lord, whom also are being built together, excuse me, whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of the Spirit of God's Spirit. We are the new temple. Christ is the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets, that's God's word, is the foundation set upon that. And we are the living stones. We are the new temple, one temple. 
And if you're not sure if all of God's word is relevant, think of this in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, when he's speaking to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, he says that he begins, he began to explain, he says, in the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded to them all the scriptures, the thing concerning himself. So Moses, that's the books of the law, the prophets, that is, all of the prophet, all the, uh, the prophets that you see in the scriptures. But then he even says later on in verse 40, 44, right before his ascension, he, he adds psalms in there because he says this. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, These are the words which I spoke while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms concerning me. People of God, believe God's word. Know you are one people, one body. And he says all this, and then he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word is truth and that we are your people and that we are never alone, but you are ever with us and in us so that we are more than conquerors in Christ. Teach us to see not only ourselves in all our predicaments and problems, but in your presence also. Help us to receive your truth of, the, of our unity in your Son, that we may live as your people in care and fellowship with one another. In your Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.